Welcome everyone to today's episode of Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance Group, where we learn from and celebrate the local leaders, businesses, and nonprofit organizations who have stood the test of Tucson time. I'm your host, Matt Nelson of Crest Insurance, and I'm joined here at Tucson Business Radio X Studios virtually today by Ryan Foster this month to talk about courage and how that replace uh, how that relates to workplace culture. So thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us. It's truly a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity. So thinking about the theme for this episode and really kind of the idea of a culture of courage, um, you know, I'll explain a little bit why you were the perfect guest to, to, to talk about this with, um, especially as it relates to Crest. But, you know, I think about the year that we're all coming out of. 2020 was a rough year in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, whether it was a business owner that looked at 2020 and was really struggling trying to find how they were going to keep their business running through the end of the year um, with this idea of the economy restarting, or it was a person, maybe it's an employee that wasn't sure if their job was going to be there at the end of the year. There are, I think, a lot of people who coming out of the last 12 to 15 months might have some fear and some trepidation about the days ahead. And, and um, I think some hope might be in order, but, you know, I would be I would perfectly understand somebody not feeling that and feeling, you know, lack of confidence about it. And so we were fortunate to meet. And, uh, and with that said, I think first and foremost, a welcome is in order as just this month, you made the decision to join the Crest team. So, so first and foremost, welcome aboard. We are thrilled to have you as part of the organization. And, you know, what did you see in the people you got to know at Crest that made you want to make the jump? Yeah. And I think, I think for me, I, you know, I, I've been kind of on my own since I've got out of the Marines and I think we'll talk about that later, but um, you know, I've kind of just been running my own deal and it's kind of been lonely. It's, you know, you look for, for a person that grew up playing in sports, collegiate sports, and then going on and being, being a Marine, you always look for teams. Um, and so when that opportunity came along to kind of meet the crest people and kind of see the culture, it was just, it was just such a great feeling. And, uh, you know, I made the trip out to Arizona just recently and, um, got to hang out with a lot of you guys. And it was just unbelievable. I mean, you guys are so welcoming. Uh, everyone's motivated to help one another. It's just a really good, encouraging culture, which, I mean, that, that sealed the deal for me. Well, that's, that's great to hear. I, you know, I'm relatively, I guess you could say relatively new to the Crest organization. I've been here for about a year and a half now. I've known of the organization for a number of years and yeah, my, my, perception um, echoes yours to a T. I mean, it is truly, truly incredible and, and rare to find an organization where that's the feeling when you, when you come into it. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that that was your perception of it, um, you know, as you kind of looked at joining the team here. And so picking up with this idea of courage, right? And this idea of, of facing fear, uh, I'm, I'm going to crib from, from an army values definition, but the idea of personal courage, right? You know, face fear, danger, adversity, whether uh, physical or moral, right? And, you know, in, in business, as in any aspect of life, and, and you know, as you mentioned, I mean, the military, the, so much of kind of our ability to persevere through a difficult time is based around that idea, that, that, that kind of grit, that personal courage, right? And your life has been one, I mean, just the, the little bit that I've gotten a chance to get to know you already, um, there have been a number of instances where you've taken, I think, a tack that's, um, it's exceptional in, in our society because you, you looked at a situation that was, that was maybe scary to a lot of people and you've had the personal courage to not only enter into it, but when you faced adversity, you've been able to kind of bounce back and hunt the good stuff out of it and then go and do something. And that's, that's something that I think a lot of people they understand it conceptually, but of course, you know, it's, it's, it's very different when you're the one catching that first punch in the face, right. To have to be able to kind of get back up and, and figure things out. Um, so from an insurance perspective, because I'm always curious, this is my first question I ask anybody who I ever encounter in the insurance industry, right. And in your case, you've got, I think, uh, an easy answer, which is you come from a family of insurance brokers. But was this industry something that you knew you wanted to be involved in back in back in high school, back in college, or like so many of, it, of us, was it something you kind of fell into um, after after looking at a couple other things? Yeah, um, we definitely we came. I think I'm third generation insurance agent. So my dad got out of Vietnam 
Um, and his dad passed away when he was about, my dad got out about 21 years old and his dad passed away and ended up buying his agency then. So my dad's, you know, from 21 years old, went into a business that he had no clue of, bought it and started running it and has done very well. I, I would say, and, you know, he always gave my brother and I amazing opportunities and, and things with his business. So, um, I didn't really foresee myself going into insurance even as much as like some of my friends as we were getting into high school and even into college, they're like, I want to do what your dad does. And I was like, oh man, you should see what this stuff my dad has to do. Like, you don't want to go through that. But, um, you know, when I got out, I, I was, I was in a tough time, you know, struggling getting out of the Marines and my dad gave me a job and, you know, I still, still struggled to, to grasp, like, is this the right career for me? Or is this what I want to be doing? But it was like, you know, about four, about three to four years ago that I kind of just had a flip. And, you know, I love my clients. I love helping their businesses grow. We were raised to kind of like honor and and love small business. It's it's kind of the American way. And, and I think that's some of the things that clicked. Like I could really have an opportunity to help these people's businesses grow, um, help their employees, help retention, those type of things. And I just love the relationships that I have with my clients. They're just good, hardworking people. And I think that, you know, is what really solidified for me. Like, this is it. I want to be here. So. Makes sense. I, you know, uh, the way that I always kind of jokingly describe my, my jump was, uh, you know, I was trying to be an attorney and I got sidetracked and then I wound up in an industry where I realized, you know, you look around and all of a sudden you realize there are very few other places where you're going to get this type of access to this diverse uh, uh, selection of businesses and see how they operate, get to meet the people who kind of drive them. I mean, there just aren't many industries that are going to give you that diversity of experience. Insurance is really unique in that aspect where you can be walking. You know, I, I, I remember one client, I remember one day, the day that it clicked was I was walking out of one client's office that they were designing parts for the space shuttle. And I walked into another client's office that it was, it was just a really, really well-respected family subcontracting firm. And I was just like, man, I was struck by how incredible it was that the, the conversations you could have in a, in a given day. And there just weren't many other places in many other places in business where you were going to get that opportunity. Has that been your experience as well? Oh yeah, for sure. And that, that builds diversity in your character. I mean, learning how to navigate and deal with different, you know, different groups. I mean, you got blue collar, white collar, you got, you know, you could be dealing with even ethnic type things that were, you know, different cultures and, and things like that, where you kind of have to adapt and help kind of communicate. And I think it's, it's just an amazing opportunity for us to kind of even grow in our own character through our clients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, so let's talk about, so, so before the Marines, so you grew up in Colorado, right? Yep. And so you got into sports. What was, what was your sport? What did you play? I played soccer. So. Okay. All right. So, and, and was that what took you to Oregon state then, or, or so you went to play soccer at Oregon state? Yep. Yeah, I did. I got a, got a partial scholarship up there and, um, ended up starting my freshman year and, um, yeah. And there was about five of us from Colorado that all went up to Oregon state to play together. Okay. All right. And then, so, so you come back to Colorado and um, so you're at Metropolitan State University studying business. So 2003 rolls around. And so you decide to enlist in the Marine Corps, which is, um, you know, in some ways, like you said, your, your dad was, uh, was an army, was he, an, uh, he was army aviator in Vietnam? It was the he... 82nd Airborne. Yeah. He was, okay. uh, was a radio right. officer, but yeah, he was uh, attached to 82nd Airborne. Okay. All right. And so, um, so you kind of follow it, it in a sense in the family, you know, in the family footsteps in military service, was that something that you had planned out or was that something that you kind of came to the conclusion of while you were going to college and decided you want to jump into it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always, my brother and I grew up playing army on a daily basis. Um, you know, both my grandfather fought in world war two, um, uh, one in the Pacific, one over in Germany, and then, you know, know my dad. So we just have this high level of uh, patriotism and just love for our country. Like after you and you, you know, going around to third world countries and seeing way what these people have compared to what, you know, the opportunities and, and gifts we have in America, you're it's I mean, how can you not want to fight for that and try to keep 
you know, as imperfect as it is, it's a great place to be. And um, we have great people in this country. So I agree. Yeah, I agree 100%. Well, and so, and so this is 2003, right? So this is like, it's like March 2003. Um, you know, that's the Iraq invasion, right? Mm -hmm. And you go into the Marines in May. Yep, May of right after that. So I mean, so like you're talking, uh, if your process was anything like, like mine with the Army, you know, you're talking to a recruiter for a couple months beforehand. And so like things are things are heating up. It's not, uh, there is no idea of I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in and maybe something's gonna happen. Like at that point, you're going through, you went through MCRD San Diego, I'm assuming? Yep. Yep, All so you go there. through MCRD San Diego, right after the invasion in, uh, you know, in March of Iraq. Um, so you gotta know you're going overseas and you're finishing training. So what's your thought process at that point? Because it is, there has to be an element of, A, you've got the unknown of the military in general, right? Which I mean, again, I don't know your experience going through boot camp, but my experience was akin to having a footlocker turned upside down and, and dumped on the center of the floor. Like I thought I knew a lot of things coming in and my world got shifted and I went in late. I enlisted at like 25. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what was that like for you? Your, your thought process, you're kind of going through this. Was it like, nope, this is 100% still what I want to do? Or is this like, whoa, this, this accelerated quickly? What were you thinking? Yeah, well, what really drove it was my brother. So my brother was, we, brought, we were three years apart. So I graduated, was going out playing soccer at Oregon State. And then I played at Metro too. And um, my brother went straight out of high school into the Marine Corps. Uh, may, he made the first push to Baghdad. So he came back with his stories and his fun, um, if, so to speak. And I was like, I, I can't miss this. Like, so, I mean, I, I had a full ride scholarship at Metro, but it, none of that really mattered because, you know, the way we've grown up, it's, it's about serving our country first. And so I dropped out and, and yeah, just went to the same recruiters he did and was ready to go. I mean, it, I knew for sure I, there was, I told them I will not join unless you put me in the infantry. I'm not going to join. Like, this is the only reason I'm going over there is to go serve and go fight. And so, I mean, it worked out and, um, my brother and I actually got stationed at the same, same camp out in California after we went through uh boot camp. And then I got stationed with two guys from my high school and all of us went in at different times. None of us knew we were going in and ended up in the same platoon. That's so. wild. I, I mean, on one hand, I, I think, uh, how, how your older brother, how much older is he than you? Uh, he's younger actually. Oh, so younger than you. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, uh, my, my younger brother and I, we, we had um, an experience where we went to rival high schools, rival universities, and if he had gone into the military, we probably would have wound up in rival services. So it's good <laughs> that you guys had the, uh, the, the more collegial relationship between the two of you. I said yeah. I would love for my little brother, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you, when you get overseas, um, like you said, and you alluded to it, you know, you've got a perspective that um, not a lot of people have, right? Which is you see a part of the world that things are very different, right? And and arguably you're seeing it at a bad time, right? Um, because you're you're in the midst of, of a war over there. So it's not like, you know, it's not like you're seeing, you know, Iraq at the best of times, you know, that sort of thing. But what does that do for you and your perspective coming back? Even after hearing your, you know, you're hearing your brother's stories and, and everything like that, you know, you're coming back and you've got you know, kind of this understanding of, of the world from an American perspective, what do you see? Uh, you mentioned gratitude. Um, do you see anything that, you know, like there's a, there's a stark contrast here. There are similarities here as you, as you compare and contrast, what, what's your conclusion about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, we went through two really hard combat tours over in Iraq. We did uh, the first push in Fallujah in 04, and then we did about four cities, five cities up by the Syrian border on our second tour. And, you know, in that total, we lost, I think it was right around 27 guys in both tours. But I mean, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about just life itself. Um, I mean, it's, it's doing what you can for the brother next to you, um, keeping each other alive. Um, and then it's also doing your best you can to keep the the people around you alive i mean obviously we're you know we want to take down the bad guys but at the same time we don't want to harm anyone that isn't um 
And, you know, especially what I saw over in Iraq, I had this like contrast of like when we were there. So I was, you know, where Fallujah is, it's in the the Fertile Crescent. So you got the Euphrates running through there and like these beautiful palm groves. You're kind of looking around and you're like, man, these people could have like an amazing place if they just had some leaders, someone to lead them, you know, in a way that's, you know, better instead of being a dictator type role for the country. And um, you see a lot of that when you're over there, you, you get to see a little bit of the culture and stuff and, and see maybe why things are the way they are over there. But you notice too, that there's a lot of similarity, similarities there that, you know, these people just want to live their lives. You know, like a lot of times we're in the farming areas and things like that. They don't want all this stuff going on. They just want to, you know, farm and have their family and live and, you know, and I, I feel the same way. If I was in their shoes, I would be the same way. So so you mentioned leadership and, you know, one of the things that um, as, as, as an army guy, it pains me sometimes to say it, but no, it, 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 like the Marine Corps has an absolutely incredible leadership development, really a leadership development culture, I think. And that it, the, you know, I mean, the very name devil dog is kind of like, it comes from this culture of tenacity and fearlessness, you know, and, what do you think it is having gone through, you know, kind of that training and indoctrination process? What do you think it is that gets everybody coming from all different walks of life? That was actually one of my favorite things about the military. And I think we had talked about that a little bit, right? Is that you get, you get people from every different situation in life and they all get thrown into this blender, Mm -hmm. right? And out of this 12 week, 16 week, you know, depending on your MOS process, out of this has to come a group of people who is capable of not only enduring, not only not only coming into a situation that they know is scary, right? But maintaining cohesion throughout it and maintaining cohesion throughout things that any rational person would find terrifying, saddening, maybe even crippling. What is it in that training and indoctrination process you think changes that? Or do you think that the people that come in, like you just naturally gravitate towards the Marines because you've already got that in you? I think part of it's that, but I think part of it's like fostered and generated through, you know, your leaders and, and things like that. Cause it's, I mean, as much as, yeah, like we talked about all these people coming together and wanting to do it's, it's, it's not always, you know, roses when you're doing the stuff, like you, you have conflict and stuff, but the missions get accomplished and you find ways to do it. And I always like wonder, man, if like the government or even larger corporations could get on the same page of like, you know, we're going to do the best for the whole. And, and I think that's kind of what it is. Like we train our guys, like if our weakest link doesn't know how to get up a 50 cal or can't clean his weapon, right. Or whatever, we sit down with them and make sure he does it until, until we fully know that he can do it. Cause you know, the time when a guy goes down and he has to jump up there and man it, you know, he better be able to do, do his thing. Um, and so I think you see that a lot in, in corporations, at least like what I hear from my buddies that are in corporate world and, and even in government, man, it's just like, no one's got each other's back and no one's willing to listen to the other side to kind of make compromises to build and build that team unit, you know, to make it more efficient. I agree. I, and you actually brought up something really interesting, which is, you know, I think it's one of the biggest misconceptions that I've, when I had friends that I talked to that they were like, oh, you know, like they have misconceptions about the military. I'll put it that way to put it, to put it kindly. Right. And so one of them is, well, you know, I could never join the military because I can't just, I can't just listen to people and, and follow orders, you know, like, and, and one of the big mis- like there's a huge part of that. Don't get me wrong. Like at some, at some level, an order is a requirement that the unit needs, the unit of people needs to accomplish things. And that larger task is broken down into component tasks that are, that are orders, right? But at the same time, I, in any military unit that I was in, like the, the idea that you were just an automaton that was just like unquestionably doing what was told is, is completely ludicrous. Uh, you know, at, at any level, if, if an idea sounded unsafe or quite frankly, stupid, you know, it was it was incumbent upon you, uh, even at the lowest level. I mean, it, it, with the guys that I was in charge of, that was at the lowest level. It was like, if I say something that you don't understand or that seems like it doesn't make sense or that you think I'm not seeing something, like the expectation is that you raise your hand and say, hey, wait a second, I don't get this. Why are we doing that? 
and and I think again the misconception is this idea that the military is not a thinking person's place and and it, again it's a completely ridiculous thing in my experience what was yours especially in an infantry in an infantry group because you know you are I, I was in aviation I was happily standing next to a very expensive helicopter and making sure it stayed up in the air right you guys are in the thick of things in an extremely dynamic environment what is your take on that kind of culture of maybe the courage to raise your hand when you either don't understand something or something seems wrong. What was that in, in the Marine Corps and, and in the infantry specifically in your experience? Yeah, I, I think there's different styles of leadership and, you know, you know, several of them could be effective. And it's the ones that are mainly like open, you know, when you have a leader that can actually listen to, you know, the people below them and, and actually you know, hear what's being said and translate that and help them out. Um, you know, that's where it becomes more effective. If you have someone that's just a straight, you know, leading the way and they're not going to listen to anyone and it's my way or the highway, which, you know, fortunately for when, when I was over in Iraq, I had my first two, I had some amazing, some phenomenal um, leaders over there. We had, we had, you know, some guys that came over from force that were our commanding officers and, and things like this. And they led from the front, man, they were running and gunning, you know, with us, they weren't just calling shots. They were out there freaking doing it with right beside us. And, you know, that made you feel good because you're like, you know, he's, he's willing to put himself in the same harm that you are. And he doesn't, you know, isn't expecting, you know, more out of you than he would, you know? So, um, yeah. Makes sense. It makes sense. And I mean, it, again, seems a direct corollary to effective leadership in, you know, in, in the commercial world, in the civilian world that, you know, like we've talked about, and it's certainly something that I know, as I talk to friends who were also in the military in one capacity or another, that's, that's one of the things that's really difficult to find sometimes um, outside of it is that, that notion of, you know, kind of leadership from the front, willingness to have some humility around you know, one's decision-making process, things like that. Cause yeah, it is, um, it's a lot easier to sit in the back and tell people what to do, uh, not only from the perspective of personal safety, but also quite frankly, from the perspective of when something goes wrong, um, it's a lot easier when the other people are doing it to let the blame fall on them, you know? And that's one of the things that leadership from the front really eliminates from the equation because if something goes wrong, it's like, well, you were up, you were up in the mix and you're the leader. So you know, you're, you're in a position that just naturally refer, turns itself into one of accountability, which is another rather unique element of the military, right? It's that idea of serious personal accountability. And, and again, I can't imagine an environment that would foster that more than the infantry. I mean, it's, you could almost argue instant personal accountability if the situation's right, you know? So, so let's talk about, you received the Purple Heart while you were in Fallujah. Was that tour one or tour two? Uh, first one. First one. So, so walk us through that day. Um, you know that that triggers kind of you getting the uh, the Purple Heart. You guys were you were out on a patrol. What? Um, how did that all go down? You were you were in a mounted unit, so you're in a Humvee. Yep. Um, yep. And you were uh, a turret gunner, right? Correct. Which yep. for for people who aren't listening that the, maybe maybe not, might might not understand um, turret gunner. You know, you've got a gun mounted on the roof of of a Humvee. In your case, um, I don't believe you were even in an up-armored Humvee, right? You were in just a regular Humvee, correct? Yeah, we, we didn't start getting up-armored until like the very end of the tour. And then with the tow, I was a tow gunner, so you couldn't have up-armor on there anyway. So yeah, you're always kind of exposed. Yeah, so you're you're out in the, in the, in the thick of it. Um, and, you know, I mean, you're on top of it. So you're not even, you don't even have concealment sitting inside of the thing. Although again, anybody who's been inside a <laughs> been inside a non armor non up armored Humvee, it's like you have a choice between canvas doors or doors that are approximately the thickness of a Dr Pepper can. So it's not like there's it's not like there's a ton of protection sitting inside of it. Um, but um, but you're on you know you're you're poking out the roof and yep. you know so you're basically a bullet magnet on top of a bullet magnet. Yeah. Um, and so you guys walk us through what what happened. How, what you know what 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 led to you getting the, the purple heart that day? Well, I mean, kind of I'll give some context to like where we were in location and kind of time frame. So 
Um, if you kind of remember back right around there in 2004, when those contractors, the Blackwater guys got um, caught up in the city and um, they were burned and hung from the bridges um, there, we pushed in the very next day, blocked off those two bridges with another section of golf company and basically shut down the city from those two bridges coming out of the city where now you had about, I think it was three or four other battalions up on the north side of the city, now all starting to push through the city. Um, and that was kind of, I mean, the, the, the code name for that was Operation Vigilant Resolve. And, um, but we lived in the middle of the street. They told us we were going in for three days. I mean, by that time, by the time I got hurt, it was almost close to a month, I think, we were living in the middle of the street. So um, we would get in firefights across the river, um, constantly getting mortared or RPG during the day um, from outside the city. And then we would maintain our patrols, kind of just finding routes throughout. Kind of was a, it was a little bit of like farming land out where we were by the bridges. But um, on that day uh, in April, we had found some weapons in a house, had some guys watching it and they needed some food they had been sitting there for a while we were waiting on someone to come take the weapons and um, get rid of them but uh yeah so i jumped up in the gun um my driver who was my vehicle commander actually just jumped in the driving seat and we started going up towards the house which wasn't far from where our location where we found these weapons but uh we were had to cross a median and there was like a perfect cutout in the median and i was he was like didn't want to like rock me around in the turret so he's like, I'll line up the tire in that cutout. So I was leaning over the side of the Humvee, looking right over it, kind of lining up the tire. And, you know, thankfully I pulled my head back because um, inside that cutout was a pressure plated anti-tank mine. Um, so as soon as we hit that, it blew the whole front of the Humvee uh, apart and then blew off both the side doors. And then I was knocked unconscious. My eardrum was blown out. Uh, my neck's all jacked up from it. Um, and just had some debris, had some scrapes and cuts on just from debris hitting my face. But yeah, that was kind of, kind of it. But um, just thankful to be alive, man. And I mean, I think about it, if I would have left my face a little bit further over, or, you know, waited just a few seconds more, I, I don't know, the door would have probably taken my face off. So um, yeah. It's one of the things that I think a lot of people, um, and again, you know, I, you were in country, I was not. But one of the things that is kind of crazy is, you know, you look at like the second you said, oh, this perfect little cutout that wouldn't rock a vehicle. It's like anybody who has been through any sort of mountain training, right, with the pleasure of being able to sit there and think about the situation yeah. without driving a vehicle, trying to like just trying to get something done. That's the first thing you think is that would be where you would place a pressure plate mine, right? Um and I can't, I cannot fathom trying to go through the experience that you went through and not seeing echoes of that in a lot of different places, yeah. you know, both in country, but when I come back. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, I want to pause for a second uh, before we jump into the rest of this um, and just take a quick break. So for those of you just joining us, uh, this is Culture at Work in Tucson, probably presented by Crest Insurance Group. As the largest locally owned and operated insurance brokerage in Southern Arizona and one of the top 100 insurance agencies in the United States, Crest is your hometown broker to assist with commercial, commercial insurance, workers' compensation, and employee health insurance plans. Crest has offices throughout the state of Arizona, um, also with locations in Denver and Fort Collins, Colorado, where my guest Ryan Foster is coming to us from, as well as San Diego. San Diego. Um, so... I'm your host, Matt Nelson, and now back to our conversation with Ryan Foster, um, newly of Crest Insurance. And, and again, we're thrilled to have you on board over here. So, all right. So you hit the IED. Um, do you have to recover in country? Are you evac'd out of Iraq? What's what's the what's the next couple of weeks, months look like for you? Yeah, so uh, due to the blood clot in my eye, they were worried about like brain trauma, which ended up being like a minor TBI. And um, I also, my eardrum was blown out. So they kind of were, you know, they just met it back me just one to make sure anything within my head was okay. And then um, whatever would have to happen with my ear, which, you know, your eardrum, if it's not too big can heal on its own. 
If not, then you have a surgery to just put a flap of skin on it and, and it can cover up that way. So I ended up actually going all the way back to the States uh, to see if I needed to do the stuff on my ear and just for some like more reevaluation stuff. Uh, my ear ended up healing on its own. And I actually, myself and one of my other buddies requested to go back after I got okayed. And I went and went back and finished my last four months there. So, so what did you learn about yourself? And I mean, as an athlete, you know, you were probably no stranger to, to injury, right? I mean, pain is a part of part of sports. Um, did you learn anything? I guess I should rephrase. Did you learn anything different about yourself in terms of, you know, playing back that day, but kind of like your recovery from it? Um, you know, clearly, like we talked about, the theme this month is courage. And there are a lot of people in that situation that would not be immediately raising their hand to say, nope, I want to go back to my unit. There's a lot of people who would, right? Um, because there's a sense of belonging, right? In a unit that's very difficult to replicate. But did you learn anything different or, or unexpected about yourself as you went through that? Or was that kind of pretty much how you thought it was going to be? If you, you know, did you think, hey, I might get hurt, I might get blown up and, and have to face this? Yeah, I think at that point, we had we had lost so many guys already and had so many injured by the time we were even fighting in there um i kind of was at that point when i got blown up this that was actually the second time i gotten blown up um the first time they just buried an ied too deep and it was a direct hit on our vehicle but thank thank the lord it was uh it was buried way too deep um but you know i i felt it coming i was like we're having too many injuries i mean at that point I think we counted like roughly like we had, you know, I had like at least like four or five bullet holes around me hitting the TU of the the launch tube on the uh, tow missile. We had bullet holes in the back part of the Humvee. Um, you know, it, it was just like, and there was times where I was asking like for a break. I mean, I was just kind of getting tired of getting shot at and, and all that, like asking one of my A gunners, like, Hey, do you want to just want to cruise up here on this patrol? And he'd look at me like, I'm good, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, you, you, you just gotta like, I don't know, there was a spot in there where I just like tuned it out. Like if it happens, it happens, but I got to do the best to protect my guys while I'm up here. And so, um, and your training, man, like the training just comes in secondhand. Like that's where I can say, like, you know, um, I've, I've been saying this thing with Jason, I like discipline thoughts, discipline actions. Um, and it's like the discipline of that the military puts in you. You know, I remember some like quick reaction stuff that I was doing when, you know, we got in some, you know, firefights and stuff. And it was, it literally felt like second nature. Like I did not think about anything I was doing. Um, I was just getting on the gun and going, but it's amazing. Like how those repetitions of things build that in you to, to, to be successful and, you know, keep yourself alive. You could almost, you could almost say that, that there's an element perhaps of courage that is kind of practiced and learned. Um, you know, in an environment that you like, cause you have to have the capability to compartmentalize and, and put things in the rear view so that you can get your job done. Right. Which again, there, there seem a lot of parallels, um, to other scenarios in life that aren't, you know, in a combat situation where, you know, you have to have the ability to compartmentalize and drive on, you know, you, you've got to have the ability to kind of get your mind at rest so that you can focus on the task at hand. And so I really think, so you do a second deployment after that, right? Um, that deployment without incident or were there hairy, was it, was it as, you know, as bad, better than versus your first deployment? Yeah. I mean, second one was, we lost almost as many guys as we did as the first one. Um, but it was smaller pockets of it. It was, uh, the stuff we encountered, it was like hit Haditha, um Huseba, some of those some of those uh towns right up by the syrian border that just had really good planned attacks on us i mean uh when we we ended up killing a lot of these guys and so uh we found you know syrian money american money these guys had all the chess rigs they had the good guns um good weapons on them and so it was well-planned attacks on us and it ended up, you know, costing a lot of our guys' lives. But um, the good thing is we got most of them. So, but yeah, I mean, it was a little different. It was a little, you know, some of the pockets of going through the cities, it was just like kind of, you almost build up that complacency because it's, 
you keep moving and nothing's really happening. And then all of a sudden something would pop off and then it would go back to the same, like nothing's really happened. So, um, but that's, uh, I love, I love that term as cheesy as it is complacency kills. It's so true in anything in life you do. Like it's true in your friendships and your marriage and your work life. You get complacent in it and it's, it's going to start taking its course. I agree. So 2007, um, you decide to get out of the Marines and now you come back home. Right. And that's, um, that's a tough transition for, for a lot of people, but certainly, um, you know, like the situation you describe, you know, you're in, you're in a high attrition field, a high attrition unit in a high attrition series of locations. Um, you personally bear the consequences of that. So you come home and you have to find a way to, to, I love the term reintegrate into civilian life. Right. And, um, it's such a challenge for a lot of veterans, right? Never mind veterans who have had really up close and personal experiences with war, right? What did you encounter as your biggest challenges? Um, because I really, you found a really interesting silver lining. Um, and again, it's one that when I talk, I've talked with people who have faced difficult situations, many in the military, you know, that's kind of, for a lot of people that crystallizes in a moment where they realize there's a lot of other people who are facing this. So what was your, what was your kind of challenge when you got your biggest challenge, I guess I should, I should say, when you came home, was it just getting used to civilian life or was it still kind of those echoes of, you know, of, of the injury and, and of the ID and, and, and everything like that? Yeah, my, I definitely did not transition well and I made a pretty good mess of my life for about five years getting out and I think part of it could be attributed to my TBI because um, one of the things I found when I finally got connected to um, some actually like some TBI doctors and stuff is drinking is one of the worst things you can do for your TBI for as far as having your brain recover. And I was, you know, kind of pretty much doing that every single day um, and trying to just find something to replace. Like I lost a lot of my like zeal for life. I mean, going through what we went through, like nothing compares to that. Like as far as the adrenaline, um, just, just the overall thing that you go through. I, I haven't experienced anything like that. Um, except maybe some things in my faith and my marriage and, um, but you know, that it was just a huge struggle and I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. There was times I was like, man, maybe I should just go back in or maybe I needed to go do contracting work or something like that. That'll, just go back to what I know, because I love doing it. You know, I loved um, being a Marine and I loved, you know, my guys and being around the guys. So, you know, so that, that was where it struggled. And then, you know, I, I had some relationship things that went on that weren't so great. And, you know, I, I have accountability for that as well. And, but then I had my daughter and like, one thing I knew in life, I never was going to be a bad dad. And so that was kind of what, you know, started to get me back to like one, you know, I fell out of my fitness, so I needed to figure out a way to get back to that. And I need to find a way to start providing and, and doing that. So. So, and, and the fitness piece, I, I think is, is, it's a, it's a beautiful segue into, into talking about the Reveille project, but so I know that now you're, you're big into physical fitness and specifically CrossFit and there's a joke in there somewhere, but that's okay. Um, but um, was that always the case? I mean, when you were a soccer player, was it just like you, like obviously in soccer, you know, you're, you're fit by virtue of what you're doing, but there's a difference between playing a lot of soccer and being fit as a side effect and being somebody who is just like hyper into physical fitness and then you play soccer as well. So were you more in the, first camp or were you somebody that was really somebody that, that was passionate about physical fitness from the get-go? Yeah. I think it, it's just, I found out later with maturity that probably part of the reason I love fitness and sports so much and just everything else. Cause I, I grew up mountain biking, snowboarding, hiking. I mean, Colorado has got so much to offer and it, I think it was, it, it kept me sane and I didn't know it back then. Cause I just loved doing it, but getting out, and when I started the Revly project, I knew how important it was because how much it did for my mental health. 
that was more important about staying moving and plus going through pain. I've been basically in pain almost since 2004, my neck and all that stuff. I have these massive kinks that happen in my neck and um, I feel like I'm always at like 60% in my neck. And so it's, it's just dealing. Now I deal with pain on a daily basis. So it's, how do I do that? And the best way I found is not being sedentary. It's moving and working on my mobility. And, and then that helps my mental health as well. Tell me a bit about the Reveille project then. So you'd gotten out of your fitness and life is kind of a little bit, let's say squirrely. Um, and so did you, did you, was it something consciously where you looked at it and said, a lot of people are struggling with this. I'm going to take this on a mission as a mission and started, or was it something that, Hey, I got to get my sanity back. I'm going to start doing this. And then you start to realize it's helpful. And Hey, maybe this would be helpful for other people. Maybe, maybe start off with telling people what the Reveille project is about. And then yeah. we'll dive into the second part. Um, well, the Reveille project started off, it was going to be a clothing company. So I was like, I'm going to create this clothing company. It was called Reveille clothing. And I was just going to give a certain portion of my, you know, profits to nonprofits that were doing good things for bets. And, you know, I, I knew about CrossFit when it first started because I was out in California. And uh, I always like, I was probably the guy that loved CrossFit the most, but never did it because I was just a meathead. And so I was always lifting. I was like, oh, if I do this CrossFit stuff, it's probably going to make me skinnier, weaker. But obviously now you're seeing it's creating some of the most amazing athletes on the planet. And so I started doing it. And really what I fell in love with was the community. And now, you know, CrossFit itself, if, you know, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of jokes about it, but when you got like schools like the Harvard Divinity School trying to figure out why does this create such amazing community, it's because you get a group of people together that suffer together and all, are all wanting to work together to make each other's lives better. And that's, I mean, that's, it's something amazing that CrossFit has put together and done. And so I saw that as like a good segue for vets to kind of get you know, reintegrated or whatever you want to say back into civilian life. And it wasn't like a 24 hour fitness where like, you know, you have if, one of the coolest things I tell people about CrossFit, all the gyms I've ever been in, I've never seen mirrors in them. So you don't have, it's not about the way you look and all those things. It's, it's more about functional fitness. It's how you move and how, you know, the goals you have. And um, so, you know, buying gym memberships to like 24 hour fitness and those, I just didn't see that as a good route. Like, you're still kind of secluded. You needed a place to find a new community. And a lot of the CrossFit community is filled with vets and police officers, firefighters. And so it naturally kind of, you know, picks up those guys and gals. So, but you needed a well-rounded package. So the Revly project is we did the fitness aspect, which was done through CrossFit. We did nutritional counseling. There's a community aspect and an optional faith piece. And we kind of just try to build this whole holistic approach to helping guys and gals get back into, you know, civilian life. So you, you mentioned, um, you know, a couple things that uh, maybe they're handholds, maybe, right. As you're trying to pull through an issue, right. And um, one of them family, uh, you know, like you, I mean, I've, I've got a daughter um, and uh, literally I can define my life in like, you know, pre-Katerina and post-Katerina and it's two completely different human beings um, living in my shell um on that timeline and uh and that's a story that i hear a lot you know of, of, of dads especially um you know especially i'm sorry you said you have a uh, you have a daughter right yeah i have a daughter son and another daughter so i have three kids okay. now all right yeah. so you're you this is this is old hand for you know old hat for you I, I've, I've got one and i don't know how the heck you do three because that's craziness i my, my brother has three and I asked him to describe it. And he said it was like he was drowning and somebody threw an infant at him when he had the third one. But um, so, yeah. so God bless you for that. So, so family being the one handhold, um, fitness being the other. And I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and by the way, if you ever find yourself uh, in Tucson wanting a mountain bike, I've got a spare one in the, in the garage and we can get the trails together. But um, what do you think it is about, fitness. You mentioned the community of CrossFit and I agree. I mean, even though I give, give you a hard time about it, I mean, it is one of those things that you've got a, you've got a community of people that it's, it's, it's a very friendly, but very competitive environment. And the, and the glimpses I've had into it, which is in a lot of ways, it's kind of like being on an athletic team or in, or in a military unit where it's like, you know, like there's a the physical fitness is an individual sport, but it certainly, it certainly makes it a lot easier for a lot of people when you've got 
some friendly competition going on, going on to help motivate you. So, you know, you've got that aspect of fitness and then there's the internal focus element of it, right? Where you're trying to do things the right way and competing against yourself. What, what was more motivational to you? Was it the community part of it or was it the ability to kind of compete against yourself and, and constantly trying to better yourself through physical fitness? Yeah, I think for me, it probably switched to the community aspect. Like the one thing that I've had to go through is, you know, I'll never be where I was once before. Like my necks until maybe at some point here, going to have to have surgery. Um, the pain I feel, the neuropathy I have, some of the things I just probably won't get there. I mean, I do work hard still and I try to, to you know, move as best as possible. Um, so it taught me a lot about, you know, you know, when you lose things too, you got to like learn how to uh, cope with that and know that life's a little different now, but being around good people and people that want to hang out with you and see your life get better, that community aspect was huge. And that's what really draw me, drew me in on, uh, on the CrossFit scene. And I mean, we can talk about it. Like you can, like I mainly run a home gym now, but I built my home gym to build community in my neighborhood. Like I ask guys around my neighborhood, I'm like, Hey, do you want to come over and work out? And, you know, like, I think that's what, you know, a lot of times these days people aren't looking for is just good community and, and realizing how important it is for you. I, I agree. Um, so the third thing you mentioned, and we didn't talk a lot about it, but I've, I've seen it on the Reveille Projects page, you know, is, is the aspect of faith and you know, everybody's got their own kind of take on things. But one of the things that, when I think about faith, it's this like this concept of purpose, which really kind of ties in with personal betterment and and family, right? Because they're all answering some aspect of the question of why am I here, mm -hmm. right? Uh, am I am I here for some higher purpose? Am I here for making whatever gift I've been given to live here, whatever life I've been given, making it better incrementally every day, which kind of fall with the physical fitness piece of it. Then there's that purpose of that comes with, I think, fatherhood, which is, you know, how do I make the world better for the little people that I brought into it behind me? Right. And, and I've got this obligation, this purpose to do that. So when I think about courage, I mean, purpose is one of those things that like you're, you're facing adversity. What you have to have first and foremost is the something that tells you why you should get up and keep striving through it. Right. And that's where that's where purpose comes in. So with that in mind, what advice would you give to somebody that's listening to your story and thinking to themselves, you know, I'm really struggling with something. I'm not sure how to get through because you listen to a story like yours. And, you know, if you're somebody that doesn't have a lot of that, I think it's really easy to look at somebody like that and say, this is a super, this is a super person. This is a superman. There, there's no way that I could face that kind of adversity and come through it. Right. And yet here you are living proof of it. So what advice would you give to a person facing that? And, and, and what if you were to look at, you know, you before it and you now. Do you think you changed or do you think it's something where it's like you already kind of had that purpose and everything like that? And that's what that you had the tools you needed to get through it. Or did you have to grow them through the process? I guess is where I'm going. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it's, you know, already in you. Um... I know I've, I've learned a lot through my faith. Um, and I would say like to that person that is struggling and whatnot, it's for me and my faith, I, I have a verse that I use. Up. Um, it's consider it your consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind. Um, and I think that because we have fears and insecurities that hold us back from everything. And those fears like to do I have the courage? Do I have the right, am I the right husband or am I right, the right spouse or the right friend and all these things that hold us back from doing us is fears and insecurities. And, um, what I would say is flip that on its head and know that it's a time for you to, to progress and, and gain in your character through that process. And like, if you can actually get that through your mind and in your heart, the trials become almost like joy. Like that's, it's this, the best way to do it. Consider it pure joy and you face trials of any kind, because you're getting this opportunity to better yourself and like, take it as a blessing. I mean, I've been through a lot of crap in my life and we didn't really touch on it, but before I even went in the Marines, I was a student at Columbine when the Columbine shooting happened. And 
I've watched people's lives just get wrecked, but I have also seen people come out in the most amazing way through these tragedies. And it's because they took that tragedy and made it something better. Um, you know, I love like Japanese art, the, I think it's called Kintsugi, or I think I might be saying it wrong, but it's where they usually take broken pottery and then they mend it with gold and they'll put the pot back together. I mean, and man, you're mended with gold like that. That crack is more beautiful than it's ever been. And that's, that's kind of, you know, what I would say to that person is we're all broken people. That's for sure. Like no one's perfect. And I think when you start to realize those things, you can flip, you know, those thoughts of, you know, am I good enough or whatnot on its head? I agree. I agree. It's, um, life is a laboratory, right? And, uh, I think about when I, uh, I lost my father at a young age. And, and when I think about the trajectory of, of my life and how it might've been different, um, there are a lot of things that you kind of look at in the moment you say, boy, it would have been nice if you never had to go through all that pain. But at the same time, you look at the output of where you're at right now and, and you say to yourself, this might not be, I mean, I look at my daughter, right? And it's like, I, I can, there's no guarantee that I would have her sitting next to me if that hadn't happened. And so I, I agree with you 100% that the, the, the trick is kind of thinking about a long enough timeline that you start to realize that your trials are A, they're temporary, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, but B, and more importantly, I love that analogy of, 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 the, of the pottery. That's, that's a beautiful analogy. Well, I'll tell you, Ryan, um, it has truly been a pleasure uh, talking with you. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, you know, we are, we're, we're really lucky to have you at Crest. Really excited to have you on the team um, in our Colorado office. And uh, I am really glad that, um, that your experience with the organization so far has been, you know, has, has, has been what we really want it to be, which is this feeling of family and people who are, you know, trying to help one another. So um, thank you again for coming and, and joining us uh, and sharing your story. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, thank you for joining us for another month of Culture at Work here in Tucson. And thank you to uh, Crest Insurance and Tucson Business Radio X for helping us to put together this month's episode. And with that, I'm Matt Nelson, and we will catch you next month. Take care, everybody.